1996 U.S. immigration law states that all those living in this country illegally, including those who came to this country on a, on a visa, tourist visa, or on a, tour, a student visa, and stayed on after the visa expired, must have returned last night to their country of origin. And if they don't return, if they did not return last night, that they forfeit their right and any hope of ever getting a resident visa and becoming a legal immigrant into this country. In effect, they must return to their own country, make application there, which may take four to 18 months to process, remain in that country until the application is either accepted or denied, and then, if it's accepted, they can move to this country. If it's rejected, then they're forced to live in their country continually and will never get back into this country. If they don't return home, when they are caught, they will be deported and essentially blackballed from ever entering this country legally again. At least that's what the law now states. They could sneak back in, but they could never come in legally and be a resident legally. I mention this because this past week I visited with Yvonne Nolisti over the telephone. And Yvonne's heart was near breaking over this law. As you know, he has a tourist visa that is current, and so he's in no danger, and his wife has a current visa. But his three children have visas that expired a year or two ago. And if they remain and are caught, they'll be deported. If they go back, that could be a fate worse than death, and that Haiti is in tremendous upheaval at this time. And he's beside himself and wanting to know what to do, how to deal with this. And of course, if they go back, there's no guarantee they'll get a visa, a resident visa to come back in. And so they still could be confined to Haiti for the rest of their lives. He was staying here and allowing his children to stay here, hoping that perhaps they would have some kind of educational opportunity or uh, work opportunity or whatever opportunity that they could better themselves and hopefully uh, make application and be one day accepted as a resident of this country. Avon has made that application for himself. We're waiting for that to return and we have heard, not heard anything. Now, I don't know what Yvonne decided. I'll be calling him this week, but I didn't really want to know. I felt that it was his decision and prayed for him. But for a moment, I'd like to have you and I put ourselves in his place and ask ourselves, why is his heart breaking over such a decision? Now, think about where his decision, where his kids might end up as a result of his decision. They might end up forever back in Haiti. Confined, shut up in that country forever. Young people have no job opportunities there. They sit away and whittle away their time, either in violence or gangs or in doing nothing. It's a place of unbelievable political and social upheaval right now. It's a place of massive violence on an unprecedented scale by our standards. 
Death is everywhere. It's a place of hatred and hostility. A place of oppression and class struggle that would even make a communist turn pale in unbelief. A place of darkness and uncertainty and hopelessness and anguish where the dead and dying people are literally lining the streets. Even as hungry, worm-infested, diseased children eat their meager meals cooked over a fire of human dung on those same streets. Now, how would you feel about taking your children away from this country? We see, of course, the flaws and the problems. But for Yvonne and his family, at least on the surface, this country seems so peaceful, so beautiful, so exciting, so colorful, so happy, so free of all those things that they have known and feared over their whole life. Violence, death, war, oppression, hatred, constant turmoil and anguish. How would we feel leaving these abundant opportunities and wealth and security and hope here and perhaps making a decision that would end up with our children shut up in a life in Haiti? How would you feel? How would I feel? I know how I would feel. I would feel hopelessly doomed Shut out, barred, excluded, pushed aside, pushed outside, if you will, and confined to an existence of unbelievable misery and sorrow, forced to live on a place and a place on this earth that is incredibly, incredibly bad. In fact, for many people in Haiti, it's so bad that death is welcome relief. Friends, there is a fate worse than being confined to live out your days in a place like Haiti. And that is being confined to live out eternity in what we call hell. In what the Bible calls the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. According to the Bible... This is a fate worse than death itself. In fact, the Bible calls it the second death, which is far worse than the first death we will experience. It is to be shut out, barred, excluded from that paradise of God which we've been looking at over the last two Sundays, that beautiful place with all of the opportunities and the the glorious presence of God Himself shut out from all that the brilliance of that and splendor of that city known as the heavenly Jerusalem with all of its privileges and happiness and joys and opportunities to be separated from God Himself to to always be outside heaven the very home of God a home full of love and peace and security to be confined outside in a place that the Bible describes as a lake of fire, a place of unbelievable torment and suffering. Yes, that would be a fate worse than death. 
much worse than being sentenced to live out even your life here in a place like Haiti or Central Africa or India or Bangladesh. It's a fate, I'm sad to say, many, many people will one day discover will be theirs. Jesus said these words. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many, many who go in by it. Narrow is the way that leads to life because he's the only way to life. And few are they that go in by that way. Many, many more enter into the lake of fire than will enter into the heavenly city. As we saw last week in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, God is revealing the glories and brilliance of heaven, the paradise of God. And in the midst of this breathtaking setting which John saw and shares with you and I, we hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, saying some very important things. Turn, if you will, to Revelation 21. And let's begin with verses 6 to 8. And we could read, And the Lord Jesus Christ said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Verse 7, Revelation 21. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, verse 27. But there shall by no means enter into it, this heavenly city, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 22, verses 14 and 15. Again, John recording the Lord Jesus in the essence of what he just said. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the, of the heavenly city, if you will. But outside are dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Now, how did people end up outside? Shut out of God's paradise shut out of the heavenly city, the new city, Jerusalem, shut up into a lake of fire, confined there forever. How did they get there? You say it's because they were cowards. They told lies. They lived a lie. They were idolaters. They were sexually immoral. They were murderers. And so forth. But I can hear Jesus saying to us in our self-righteousness, who among us has not been cowardly? I know I've acted cowardly before. Who among us has not told lies, even lived those lies? Who among us has not fallen down and worshipped things in place of God? I'm fearful I have. 
Who hasn't had sexually impure thoughts and been murderously angry with his brother without a cause? Most of us, if not all of us. No, we don't end up outside in the lake of fire because, strictly speaking, we have done some bad things. Then how do these masses of people end up shut out of heaven and shut up or confined to the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone? Now, if you would, turn back over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to look very specifically with verses 11 to 15. Now, in these verses, God is bringing human history, the history of this world, this present world in which we live, to a final and just conclusion. We look at the injustices in this world, we think of the Adolf Hitlers, we think of the Stalins, we think of the the awful people that have caused massive destruction and heartache and oppression for so many, and we think, where will they get theirs? Where's the justice in all this? Some of them live to be old men in pleasure with seemingly no fears. Where's the justice? Just prior to the creation of the new heavens and the new earth that God will create in Revelation 21, mentioned in verse 1, we have a conclusion, a proper conclusion, to the end of this earth and this heavens. And I would suggest from these verses that we're about to read in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, that there are at least six reasons why people end up shut out of heaven, shut up in the lake of fire. First, they have nothing. They have nothing. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Let's read verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. Great white throne. Now, as we will come to see, this is not a throne simply of sovereign direction. But this is a throne of judgment. A throne of judgment where God's justice and holiness will be the standard by which all men will be judged. This is a picture of so many people today. And there are many people today who would... You could call them psychics, channelers, reincarnationists, show business personalities, religious leaders. So many of them cry out today that there really isn't, death really won't be that bad. That we should not fear death because what awaits us is a long tunnel and a big light at the end of it and eternal bliss. It's interesting that suicide is on the rise in this country, particularly among the young. The question is why? Because as one analysis puts it, our contemporary culture is successfully selling the idea that if you take your life, you'll probably get a better ride the next time around. 
That sounds like what we're sharing with people today, what they believe. Let me share with you what the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 9, the end of the chapter, it says this. It is appointed unto men once to die. Not twice, not three times, once to die. And after this, the judgment. That's what it says in the Bible. What judgment? This judgment. This is the judgment we're talking about, that the Bible spoke about all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, who is the one who sat on the great white throne? Him who sat on it. In the context, it can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The sweet little baby Jesus that will be celebrating his birth and thinking about his gift of life and love to us. But in this instance, he is the eternal judge. We're told that the one who sits on the throne is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The same language is used over in chapter 22 of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 5, verse 22, we read, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. The one who sits on this throne can be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We read that as he sat there because he is infinitely and holy and wonderfully God in all of his purity, the present heaven and the present earth fled away. They fled away from his awesome presence, his purity, his holiness, his justice, because they had been the site of so much wrongdoing and rebellion. They fled away. In the words of Peter, we read that they pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Now what this means to men and women who've identified with this world is that it's all gone. Nothing remains except the awesome presence of the holy and righteous Son of God. There's no earth and there's no heavens to point to. There's no house. There's no monuments men could point to with pride. There's no businesses, no bank accounts, no prized possessions, no books, no medals, no achievements, no records, nothing. It's all gone. It's been consumed. Man has no place to go to find his justification or to justify his life in some way. No place to look. No place to run. Nothing he can hide in or take pride in. All he can do is stand there in the presence of the pure and righteous Son of God in all his majesty and glory. And so we read on in verse 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, or and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. In this verse, in the first part of verse 13, we're introduced to several other reasons why people are excluded or shut up in hell, excluded from heaven. 
And the second reason is, is that they have no life. They have no life. Notice how this begins, and I saw the dead. Verse 12. And the dead were judged, the latter part of verse 12, according to their works. Verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead. Now, many people, as I say, believe in reincarnation today, but there are equally probably as many or perhaps even more that today believe that death ends it all. That once we die, that's it. We are no more. That we cease to exist. They view, they view death as annihilation of existence, of being. But John says he sees the dead standing before God, being judged. When John speaks about men being dead, he does not mean they don't exist or that they don't move. He means they have no life. And he is specifically speaking about the life which the Lord Jesus Christ gives called eternal life. God's life. In other words, they have not been born again. They have not been born again from above. Therefore, they do not enter into the eternal kingdom. They have no life. Thirdly, they have no way out. The judgment of the dead is no respecter of persons. Notice he says, and I saw the dead small and great. Small and great. Who are these? These are the unimportant people and the important people. They're all there. There's no way you can buy your way out of this. There's no way you can, because of your power and influence, you can somehow work out of getting out of this particular judgment. One thing is certain. They will be judged. No one will be overlooked. From the the peasant, the machinist, the lowest aborigine, to the prime minister and president of the great nations of this world. Everyone will be there from all walks of life, and from all degrees of greatness and importance. Fourthly, they will have no recourse. No recourse. Notice what it says in 12b. Standing before God, or before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book of life. As John was looking at and saw, what he saw was a set of books on the one hand and a one-volume book on the other. Now, the one-volume book was the book of life. But they were not judged according to the book of life, according to this book. But according to another set of books which recorded everything they did in life, what they did, why they did it, where they did it, how they did it, expressly stated. And so we read that they were judged according to their works, the last part of verse 12 and verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, the death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, again it states it for emphasis, they were judged each one according to his works. This is stated twice. This judgment is a judgment according to works. Many people want to be judged according to their works. They will be judged according to their works. Here. They will have their wish. 
But believe me, this will not be a time of legal controversy based upon insufficient evidence and circumstantial evidence. It will not be a time with impartial juries. It will be a time of absolute justice. There will be no one who can say, you misunderstood my motive, Lord. Or you only saw half of what I did. Or I didn't mean to do it. Or my circumstances left me no choice. The exact record of every life, what was done, why it was done, how it was done, will be open. There will be no question, no argument, no defense. Simply a judgment in which what that person did, why they did it, how they did it, will be balanced against the character of Jesus Christ. It's not good versus bad in our life. It's what we did with our life and how it stacks up to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He would have done were He living in our shoes. And where do you think that all of us will show up or how, we, how will we come out when we're compared to the perfection, the glory, the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ? There's no doubt that there will be no one able to stand in that day. However, the Bible teaches above all else that God will be just. It will be a just sentence, a just punishment. The more wicked a man has been or a woman has been, the more severe his or her punishment. You say, I never read that. Well, it's all through the Bible. Listen to what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord says, I can. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God's justice will prevail because God knows the heart and the motive as well as what was done. Jesus said in Luke 20, Beware of the scribes who desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Greater wickedness results in greater damnation. But Jesus also made another startling revelation about the judgment here before the great white throne. He says that greater opportunity to respond to God's grace will result in greater accountability in that day of judgment if that grace is spurned or rejected. Listen to these words the Lord Jesus says. Luke 10, Woe unto you, Beth Chorazan! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if, you, if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a great while ago, sitting in cloth and sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Listen to Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Paul emphasized the same thing. The Apostle Paul emphasized the same thing in his message when he spoke of those who had privileged, who were privileged to experience God's goodness and grace. Listen to these words from Romans 2. But in, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, 
You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. People want to be accountable for their works. They want to be judged on the basis of their works. They're going to have their wish. And those people whose works have been terrible, or perhaps whose works, or who've had opportunity to experience God's grace and who've spurned it or rejected, how much more terrible will it be in that day for them than for someone else who's had no opportunity to hear the truth or who has not been directly exposed to an abundance or outpouring of God's grace. Certainly, God's grace is visible in the heavens and in the world about us. So we all are going to be held accountable because we've all experienced that grace. But some have experienced it more than others. How much more accountable will they be in this day? There will be accountability. There's a fifth reason why these people are shut out of heaven and shut up in the in hell or in the lake of fire. And that is that they have no part in what the Bible calls the first resurrection. What do you mean? Verse 13 again. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Who were these dead which were judged or who stood before God? What were they like? Were they disembodied? Were they disembodied, nebulous, formless spirits, sort of people living in some kind of gaseous, ghost-like state? Sensing in their spirit the presence of God? Notice these words. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Did you catch that? You see, John momentarily in verse 13 is looking back just prior to the destruction of this earth and this heavens that we now live in. And he sees these dead being raised. They were raised at the end of history. Not in the midst of it, but at the end of it. And that is significant. Notice Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Let's read this one together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should receive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones... And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, under the Lord Jesus Christ, I might add. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, the one at the beginning of the thousand years. Blessed and holy is he who has an inheritance, who has a part in this first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. 
But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That is, those in the first resurrection. And now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as, a, is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, killed them instantly. But they shall be shortly raised up, as we read in verse 11. Verse 10 says, And the devil who was deceived, who had deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It tells you there's no end to the lake of fire. The devil and the false prophet are already there, but they're about to be joined by a whole host of people. Verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled away. And there was no, there was found for no, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, what John saw in verse 13 was a second resurrection. The last resurrection, if you will. And over such, the second death has eternal power. The second death does have eternal power. If you were raised in the first resurrection, the second death has no power over you. But in the second resurrection, it does. Notice in verse 14, it says, or pardon me, in verse 13, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. What in the world does that mean? In biblical thought, death with its long fingers gripped the bodies of the dead and held them motionless in a dark grave. Hades, on the other hand, was the temporary place of the wicked until this time it received their person apart from their body. In other words, what they were apart from their body went to Hades. We call it the immaterial part of man, or perhaps man's spirit. That went there, to Hades. The body went to the grave where death held it in its grip. And in Hades they were tormented and in damnation, but Hades was not forever. And so at this point, death, that is the grave, releases its its grip on the body. Hades releases its grip upon the spirit of these people. Body and spirit are joined together in some way and now John sees death and Hades releasing these bodies and death and Hades itself being cast into the lake of fire, which I think is a symbol of the fact that, that now this death and this torment has become identified with the lake of fire itself. Now, John sees these dead raised up with new bodies. Body, soul, and spirit are all together. And they have been prepared, joined, judged, and cast into this eternal, for this eternal torment in the lake of fire. The point is, every person will possess his body. Only it will be especially prepared, designed, and fitted for this eternal suffering in the lake of fire.
Every person judged at this great judgment seat will be cast bodily into the lake of fire. You see, that's a hard, hard saying, but that's what the text is saying. It talks about the second resurrection. It talks about the dead that were in them. This is the second death. How strongly is this emphasized? Am I overstating the situation? Take a look with me, if you will, at the first part of verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Interesting. Why do you think he said that? You see, a body that was disposed or lost at sea, you fell overboard and they had many shipwrecks in those days. People died on the ship. They were dumped overboard for health reasons. If they were swept overboard or the ship went down, you would think then that the body is irretrievable. No one can go visit the grave site. You can't go find the body and bury it somewhere and then go visit that site. You see, in the mind of the ancient world, the sea was the, the final place where you would think the body would be removed and you could never get it again. You could never get its location. You could never find the body. It's lost forever. God says, not for me. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. No person will be able to escape this judgment without a body. Even the dead who were lost at sea will be recovered, body, soul, and spirit. This past, uh, what, two, three weeks ago, it was interesting. There was a big article in the register in the nation section. It says, many prefer ocean as final resting place. And that's not just here in Southern California. Cremation is uh, interesting, too, because now, coupled with burying people at ocean, in the ocean, there is, coupled with that, the burning up of the body and then the spreading of the ashes over the ocean. And that's what the article is really bringing out, is that people are cremating the remains of a body and then spreading it over the ocean. And in the majority of instances, it's this thought that, that the body's gone. And we're just sort of letting it go back into the natural realm in which it came from. For a summer, I ran a crematory. That sounds rather gross. It was. Why... Do so many people prefer cremation in our culture here in Southern California particularly? But it was coming on strong even in that day. Ask my father, what kind of person usually wants a cremation? Sometimes it was a family who just had a distaste for burial. At other times, it was done for financial or for health purposes. But in many instances, it was done to reaffirm a belief that life ends at death. That belief that there is no resurrection, no body, no judgment, no eternal hell. Cremation, and particularly then spreading the ashes over the ocean or over land, is the final expression of these convictions for many people. Your friend, cremation, burial, disposal at sea, or being shot out into space will not prevent bodily presence before God's throne of judgment, before the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. If we as men are on the verge of basically being able to take a cell and with the DNA recreate a body that is exact copy, 
Don't you think God can handle this? Think about it. How in the world is God going to find a piece of me 10,000 years from now or 1,000 years from now? I mean, he wrote the blueprints, folks. He has not only the DNA, he's got things we haven't even discovered yet. Only one thing can prevent your presence and my presence before this great white throne. Only one thing can keep us from being cast as a whole being, body, soul, and spirit, into the lake of fire. A second death involving not only a separation of the person from his body, involving not that, a separation of the person from the body, but a separation of the person, whole person, body, soul, and spirit, from God and from heaven and from his heavenly home. A separation that results in being shut up in what the Bible calls the lake of fire. You think, that's figurative language. I'm not so sure it is. But let's assume you're right. If it's a figure, what's it a figure of? Something far worse than we can imagine. This is the most horrifying thing we can think about. Being burned alive forever and never really being consumed. If that's a figure, what's it a figure of? It's a terrible thought. It's one place we don't want to go. And what is the... The one thing. That was, that landed these people, these masses of people. What is the one thing they do not have? And that takes us to the sixth point. And that is they were not found written in the book of life. You might call it the Lamb's book of life. Notice verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. Interesting. You've got two books here, two sets of books. You've got one volume book, the book of life. And you have another set of books called the books of the deeds that we have done and why we've done them. You need many books for that. All you need over here is a name on a page. And if that name is found in that book, that one volume book, that person will not experience the lake of fire. On the other hand, everyone who's going to stand before God and says, I want to, I'm trusting my works. I'm trusting what I've done in my life and that I have done enough. That everything I've done could be compared to a holy and righteous and infinite God. That person will be judged. And the Bible says, looking ahead, no one will be able to stand. Why will so many people be excluded from heaven? Well, they will have nothing to point to, first. Second, they will not have eternal life. Third, they will have no way out of the judgment. Fourth, they will have no recourse because the books will be opened. Fifth, they will have, they will not have had a part in the first resurrection, and therefore the second death has eternal power over them. But ultimately, it is because they were not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. So the most important question that we can ask today ourselves is, how can my name get written in this book? And I can avoid this whole process of ever having to stand there before the Lord Jesus Christ and to be judged by my works. Because I know in my own heart, my works are not sufficient. I'll come up terribly short if I'm going to be judged by my works. I want to make sure my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How is it written in there? There's only one way. Someone has to satisfy the just and holy demands of God on my behalf. 
Someone has to pay for my sins, which I've committed. Someone has to be judged and condemned in my place so that I do not. I will be given life, eternal life, so that I can live with God forever, so that my name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. Who is that someone? I'm always moved when I read this passage from Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to read some excerpts. You see if you can pick out that someone. And believe me, this was written in the Old Testament 700 years before this someone appeared on this earth. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is dumb or silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Why? The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Why? He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Why? Because by the knowledge of my righteous servant shall justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul into death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's because of him dying in our place over here that we then can have new life, our sins forgiven, a new life, and our name written in this volume over here. And once our name is written in that volume, we will never be judged in the sense that we will stand accountable for our works and be in danger of being thrown in the lake of fire. Who is that someone? We know who he is. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, takes away the sin of whosoever believes in him. He was the perfect sacrificial Lamb of God who suffered, who bled, who died on a cross to satisfy the just demands of a holy God. That we who believe in him could be free of judgment and condemnation. That's why Jesus said to those who believe in him, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me, and believes in him who sent me, has, has, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. The person who believes in him already has eternal life because they believed, and they will not come into judgment but have passed from death and the life. Friends, if you're here today, 
There's nothing magical about getting into this book, about passing from death into life. It's by faith. Simply taking God at his word and trusting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior and your Lord. Trusting him. And the moment you trust him in your heart, and only you know if you're trusting him, but the moment you trust him, Jesus says you've passed from death unto life. I invite you to trust him at this very moment. In your heart, examine your life. And know for sure that you have truly put your faith in the one who can save you, Jesus. In him, there will be no judgment, no condemnation, no threat at the lake of fire. Father, we pray that you would take your word and speak to the hearts of all of us here today. May we be challenged and encouraged to reach those who are lost, who have not heard the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for them. May we be a missions-minded church here at home and around the world. And Father, we pray for any that may be here this morning without the Savior. Move in their heart that they might not leave here until they have trusted him as their Savior and Lord. May they agree even at this very moment and believe that he is their Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.